Welcome to Headlines. This is Ari Wasserman sitting in for David Lichtenstein. Today we are going to be talking about Zionism. Is Zionism a good thing? Is Zionism a bad thing? What does Zionism mean? And have things changed since the founding of the State of Israel 75 years ago? We will also talk about the Satmar ideology, the original Satmarov's argument against the State of Israel, and we will compare and contrast Satmar and Neture Karta in their ideologies and in their practices. So all of this, Zionism, Satmar, and Neture Karta, we will analyze from three different perspectives, halakha, history, and psychology. And we have a number of incredibly insightful guests joining us here today. We will start out with a halakha discussion, fascinating discussion with Rabbi Dr. Yitzhak Breidowitz, the great posek. And then we will talk history with Rabbi Penny Dunner, originally from the UK, now in Los Angeles, a rub in Los Angeles, and he has a real expertise in history. And then we will talk psychology with Rabbi Dr. David Fox, the Dayan, the psychologist. He's also the director of crisis and trauma services for High Lifeline. And then we'll get back to Halacha and Iyun Shir, Ashir Klali with Rabbi Eliyahu Reingold, the Rosh Kolel in the Yeshiva of Greater Washington. We will be talking about the Satmarov's concerns with the state of Israel, and we'll talk about who was in favor and who was against the view of the Satmarov. And then we will culminate the show with Rebetzin Fagi Tursky of Milwaukee. She has a new book that just came out, published by Mosaica. The book is called Which Way is Up? And it covers a major theme of today's show, the importance of Achdus, the importance of having strong relationships with others. As an introduction to our topic today, Right on point, Parshas Vayishlach of Esav is approaching Yaakov, and Yaakov knows that this may not be a very favorable encounter, and he prepares. And he prepares in three different, distinct, but related ways. Milchama, military preparations, tefillah davening, and doron, a gift, some way to appease the opponent. It could be through politics, it could be through rallying, it could be in different directions, different avenues, but... We see, see three, Milchama, Tfila, Doron, and each of these preparations is necessary. That's why Yaakov Avinu did all three. And in fact, we see that today. We have efforts in dealing with the war, Klalishah's war, defensive war against Hamas, Iran, and all of those players and we need to prepare, and we are prepared. It's not a preparation right now. We are in the midst of a war. And what's very interesting is the interplay between these three preparations, the three needs of war, milfama, tefillah, and dorn, especially milfama and tefillah. I want to read a letter that was written by a young man, a young boy, a young boy. Dear soldiers of the Israeli army, I'm sure many people will be sending you letters thanking you brave soldiers for fighting on the front lines to defend every Jew. Of course, that is worthy of the utmost recognition. But I wanted to thank all of you for affecting my life in a much more direct way. Unfortunately, some of my family members have strayed away from the path of Torah and mitzvahs for many years. For the first time in years, my eldest sister kept a full Shabbos. Right after Yuntif, my whole family was saying to Hillam, something I have not seen in a long time. Of course, I would like to thank you all for putting your lives on the line in the name of our holy nation. But I also wanted to thank you for giving me 
and my family the inspiration that we so desperately needed. It means more to me than you can possibly imagine. I continue to daven for the safety of every soldier in Eretz Israel so that you can continue to inspire millions every day. This is the unbelievable interplay between Milchama and Tefillah, all being necessary. In fact, just last night I was speaking with my dear neighbor, Dr. Daniel Ben-Ari. He is effectively the doctor at the Mir Yeshiva. His clinic is right on the side of the Mir, and he told me the Mir was strong in learning before. The Mir is unbelievably strong now once they've come back from Chutzla Aretz. The intensity, there is no batala. You don't see guys smoking outside. Everyone's in Seder learning because they know that they are contributing. That's their tefillah, that's their limud Torah, their contribution to Klali Israel by being in the base medrash, intense about their learning. I mentioned a few weeks ago on the show that when I see a soldier in uniform, I thank him. And it's happened on a number of occasions. I said, thank you so much for what you're doing for Klali Israel. And they respond, don't forget, we need your tefillah and you're learning, and that's just as important. That's what they say. The soldiers themselves, this unbelievable interplay, tefillah and milchama being necessary in the efforts of Klal Yisrael. A major theme of today's show is putting differences aside whenever possible. And in fact, this is something that we can learn from the message that Yaakov Avinu sent to Esav via the messenger, via the Malachim. And he said as follows, Tariq Mitzvah Shamarti, tell Esav, I kept the Tariq Mitzvahs. And the message here, very interesting, there are Tariq Mitzvahs, and even if we have a machlokes about one mitzvah, Yishu Baritishol, for example, we have to remember there are 612 additional mitzvahs that we do agree on, and our focus should be not on the one we disagree about, but the 613. 12 that we agree about. And it goes a step further than that. If we have a chiluke deos, if we disagree with somebody about that one mitzvah, don't cancel them because of it. We have to remember that they have a shita and we have a shita. And you can still do business together and you can still hire them as a singer, even if they went off to Eretz Yisrael to perform to keep up the morale for the soldiers. It's okay. We can still do business together. We can still respect each other despite the differences in our opinions. In fact, this is brought out in a Mishnah in Edios. In the fourth parak, Mishnah says such a powerful Mishnah. It's complicated talking about a machlokis between Beishama and Beishilo as it, re- it relates to Yibum. We're not going to get into the complexities there. But it says that there was a major machlokis between the two camps as it related to validity of marriage. And according to the camp, if it's Basilo that says that is an invalid marriage, be sure not to marry somebody who came out of that marriage. That would be a terrible thing. But nonetheless, the Mishnah does say, And even though this camp said that marriage is puzzle, it's not kosher. And the other camp, Beishamai said, no, it's valid, it's kosher. Nonetheless, Beishamai intermarried, married into Basilo. And Basilo married into Beishamai. Now, it doesn't mean that they violated their own halacha. It means that when Beishamai asked Basilo, or Basilo asked Beishamai, is this a woman I can marry? Does this adhere to my requirements and my halacha? 
They would say yes or no. They would trust them and they would still intermarry. In other words, I'm not going to violate my halachas. I'm not going to violate my mesorah. But I will still intermarry or marry with somebody who has a different hashkafa than I do. I'm not going to cancel them. Chas v'sholem. I have to adhere to my values, but I'm still going to be able to respect somebody with different values. And that Mishnah continues and says the same thing applied to Tuma and Tahara, that they had differences between them, is something Tama, is something Tahar. And nonetheless, it said each side did not refrain from preparing Tahar foods on utensils they borrowed from the other. This is such an important Yesod, Eilu Ve'elu, we can disagree, but let's still show respect to one another. Now, having said that, that does not mean that all alternative views are valid. It could be that there are certain views out there that are not valid. I remember hearing decades ago, somebody said, Shivim Panim Torah. That we know. There's 70 ways, 70 phrases to the Torah. But he continued in Hebrew. But each of them needs facial features. It needs to be a face to be valid. If it's not a face, it's not included in the 70. And we would say the same thing if a view is too far out there. It no longer has the features of Torah. It is no longer Torah. Now, as it relates, this week's Parsha, we have Yaakov Avinu. He's left by himself and he gets attacked by Esau's guardian angel, Samael, which is the Yetzir Hara. And it says in Chazal, it's a Gemur and Chulin, how did this Samael, this guardian angel of Esau, appear to Yaakov? An amazing machlokus, a strange machlokus in the Gemara there. One opinion says he appeared to him as an Akum, as a non-Jew, as an idolater. That's how he appeared. The second opinion is that Samael appeared to Yaakov as a Talmud Chacham. A Talmud Chacham? How could Samael appear as a Talmud Chacham? What's going on here? So the Avne Nezer explains as follows that there are two types of Yetzir Hora. There's the classic Yetzir Hora. That is the real Yetzir Hora, and it comes and trips somebody up, and it inspires him to sin. Go, oh, it's worthwhile. It's not so bad. Go for it. That's the Ka'akum Nidmalo. That is when the Yetzir Hora appears to us as an Akum, as an idolater. On the other hand, there's another form of Yetzir Hora that appears to us as a Talmud Chacham, wearing a bekasha, wearing a strimal, and says, it's a mitzvah what you're about to do. It's not an avera, it's a mitzvah. Go for it. And it convinces us that something that is an avera is actually a mitzvah. And it could be that the recent condemnation and castigation by the Satmar Rebbe of Williamsburg, Rav Zalman Leib Teitelbaum, implicit in it is that the Nature Karta is being tripped up by the second type of Yetzer, Hara. It's the Talmud Chacham that's appeared to them, telling them, you're doing a mitzvah. But it's certainly not a mitzvah. And I'm going to play a snippet of what Rav Teitelbaum says. In the English, I'll uh, read it in the English what he just said. 
There are those who lack Mesorah Savas. They don't have a Mesorah and they take action based on their own opinions because they think that they understand better than the tzaddikim from previous generations. And he continues that even in the days of this Divra Yoel Zatzal, they, that's Nadure Karta, thought they understood better than the Rebbe, causing the Divra Yoel great sorrow, and he spoke against their actions a number of times. Unfortunately, we see now to what depths these people have reached and how far they've gone to the point that they're going around with Arabs, with those who shamelessly scream that they support the terrible murders of Klal Yisrael. They appear in public with them while wearing a streimel and a bekasha, that's Samael, together with the Sony Yisrael murders. This is a terrible chilul Hashem, etc., etc. He goes on to say that their actions are proof that when people act without Das Torah, they reach indescribable places and have no boundaries. Mir Tashem, we'll get back to that in a little bit on our show. I would just also like to say we would have loved to have a Sat Marib, a spokesperson on the show, but uh, we made some efforts but don't have the proper contacts for that. So if anyone has uh, a proper person from Sat who wants to address what we speak about on today's show, who wants to respond, wants to add, please get in touch with us, get their consent first, that they're agreeable to coming on, and we love to speak with them. Before we go to our guest, let's have our riddle of the week. For this week's riddle, we'll actually have three in one, three related riddles. The Pasuk says in Parshas Vayishlach, Hatzileni Namiyad Achimiyad Esav. We have Yaakov Avinu davening to Kadesh Baruch Hu, please save me from my brother, from Esav. And the Medrash tells us that he had some concerns. This is Yaakov Avinu. Maybe I don't have such merits. Maybe I have sinned in a couple of areas. And the question is as follows. Where do we have a remez? This is going to be question number one. Where do we have a remez that he was concerned that he was at risk of being attacked by Asa because he had not fulfilled the mitzvah of Kibud Avaim during the so many years, the 20 years that he was in the house of Lavan. So he wasn't able to do the mitzvah of Kibud Avaim. And uh, we have a concern. Where's there a remez in the Pasuk that that was a concern of Yaakov Avinu? That is question number one. Question number two, Hazal also tell us that he was concerned because he had married two sisters, which is not halachically permitted, where do we have a remez and a pasuk that that was also a concern of Yaakov Avinu? That's question number two. And question number three is actually going to be a little bit harder, and it's actually also on topic for our show. Where do we have, this is number three, where do we have a remez that Yaakov Avinu was concerned that he didn't have the merit, the schus, of having done the mitzvah of Yeshiva Saret Yisrael during all the years that he spent by Lavan outside the land of Israel. So we're looking for a remez and a pasuk for that third concern of Yaakov Avinu. If you want to leave a message by phone or dial in by phone to listen, in America our number is 732-806-8700. In England it's 44, like that's the country code, 33011-70250. In Eretz Yisrael it's 02-372-0304. And now let's go and hear from our guests.
Joining us now is Rabbi Yitzhak Breidowitz. Rabbi Breidowitz is a renowned posek, a renowned magadshir, and his official position is the senior lecturer at Or Sameach, but he does so much more than that. Rabbi Breidowitz, thank you for joining us. Hi, Rabari. It's always a pleasure and uh, good to be with you. Thank you so much. So, Rabbi Breidowitz, I'd love to cover a lot of ground with you. It's a pleasure, privilege to always have you on the show whenever we can. And the first question, very fundamental question, we'll start with the Satmar view of the state of Israel, obviously a negative view. So what it is, is it fundamentally based on? Well, I know the Satmar view uh, that uh, the state of Israel is illegitimate uh, may be perhaps a minority view today, uh, but it is a view that is grounded on sources. I have to be absolutely honest. It is not the shita that I keep in my own life. It's not the hashkafa that I espouse. But I am not going to say that it's illegitimate. There are there are sources and uh, you know, many sources, but the primary source is the uh, well-known Gemara in Masachas Kesuvos of Daf Kuf Aleph that talks about God based on a pasuk in, three pesukim in Shirashirim that when Hakadosh Baruch Hu, uh, put us into Galus and the base of Mikdash was destroyed, He imposed three shavuos on us, three oaths on us. One of those oaths are loyalu b'choma. We shouldn't climb the wall. That means we should not try to gain the land of Israel by force of arms. Lo yimredu ba'umos. We should not rebel against the nations of the world. And lo yitzchaku asaketz. We shouldn't try to force Mashiach prematurely. That itself perhaps would be a talk for another side. But the basic Satmer argument, and this is the Rebbe's cl- classic work, al hagaula v'alatzmura which is a play on words in Megillah Asrus, but it means on redemption and on the substitute for redemption, uh, is that uh, as long as the Jews are in Galus and Mashiach has not come, it is against Halakha, against Judaism, against the Shavua, to establish a state. Now, it's important to understand, this is not only because uh, you know, it's a non-religious state. Even if the prime minister and the cabinet and all the Hebrew Knesset were great rabbis with long beards and very learned Talmudic Chachamim, it is the statehood itself that is considered to be a rebellion against God because it is essentially rejecting the galut that Hashem has put us into. Now, it's true that the fact that much of the Zionist establishment is either not religious or maybe anti-religious is obviously an extra factor, but it is not the fundamental basis of the opposition to the state. Now, I guess we're going to discuss what is the other side of this, because obviously there is another side. Yes. But I do want to ask on that on that point before we get to the other side. So, so what you're saying is very important. It's it's that it's not a matter of secular Zionism that was the problem, but with the maturation of, I don't know, the changeover, transition from secular Zionism to religious Zionism, we would have thought that things are improved. But if the basis is Shua, we have a Hakira here. What's the concern of, of the uh, uh, of the Satmar Rav? Is it based on the Gemara and Ksubas, based on the Shua, Shaloyalu Bechoma, or is it based on the secular Zionism, which many people did have a problem with uh, initially and also throughout the term of the state of Israel, but things have changed to the positive in that sense. So if we're the, on the first side of that Chakir the Shua, things don't change. If it's because of secular Zionism, with the metamorphosis of secular Zionism into religious Zionism, we would have a change. Yeah, of course. I mean, I mean, I, I need to make the obvious point, I guess, that 
the Satmar Rav certainly saw secular Zionism as extremely dangerous and heretical and destructive to the Jewish people. He didn't ignore that aspect of the problem. But what's interesting is that his ultimate bottom line opposition was not exclusively predicated on that. It was against the idea of statehood at all until the coming of Mashiach, because this was a violation of the sacred oath of Loyalu Bahoma. I do want to say that, you know, although we, can, we tend to associate this as a fringe idea, uh, prior to 1948, uh, there were Kamava Kamava Kama Gedolim that actually took that position, including someone that we might regard as relatively modern and progressive, although that's not an accurate description, Rav Shimshon Rafael Hirsch, who actually, in some of his writings, actually quotes the Gemara in Kasubos as an argument that Judaism is not based on statehood or political autonomy or anything like that. Okay, so let's see the other side of the coin then. What's the argument? We have a Gemara in Ksubas. Apparently it's a, an agadic statement in the Gemara, not a halachic statement in the Gemara. And it's also not brought la halacha in the Torah, So what's what's the, uh, I guess that is an argument against already, but, but what would be the main argument against? Right. So 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 really, I mean, you know, there, there are a number of different points and they may lead to different practical conclusions. On one hand, we have the fact that it's not brought down la halacha. Uh, it is an agadita. Agaditas are not necessarily necessarily authoritative in terms of normative practice. Uh, number two, it certainly seems to contradict uh, at least the Ramban. When the Ramban describes a mitzvah, it's well known that the Shittas Ramban is that there's a mitzvah deoraisa of Yishuv Eretz Yisrael that applies even when there's no base on Mikdash. Now, standing alone, one would say, well, Yishuv Eretz Yisrael is not about statehood. And yet, I believe if you look at the Ramban, I think you will see that it is, because the Ramban counts as part of Yishev Eretz Yisrael, a mitzvah to conquer and establish under Jewish sovereignty all land that is within the biblical boundaries. Now, clearly, the Ramban must have held that the Gimel Shavuos are not Lahalacha, because if that would be the case, it would be impossible to posit a mitzvah of Kibush Aretz. Kibush Aretz means a Jewish state. That is what it means. So... Perhaps we don't possibly like the Ramban, but certainly the Ramban rejected it. There are some other ideas as well, and that is the argument goes that Loyalu Bahoma does not prohibit statehood. It prohibits compulsion. It prohibits establishing a state by military conquest. And the argument goes that Eretz Medinat Yisrael was established by international consensus. Uh, the United Nations resolutions of 1948, the San Remo Conference, the Milchama of Hashikar, the, the War of Independence, was a defensive war. It was not a war of a conquest. It was a war to defend us after statehood was proclaimed. So it is said, again, I, I'm not sure if I could fully document this, but this is what the, it, is, it is brought down in a number of sources, that when the Balfour Declaration was issued, was it 19? 1917, uh, the Chavitz Chaim was still alive, and the Chavitz Chaim said, the Shavua is mutter, meaning the Shavua has been annulled, because now there is haskamat ha'umot for the establishment of a Medina. So that's an interesting point. Now, there are counter arguments, because here's the count, you know, I'm just playing devil's advocate, and that is, yes, the state was established officially by international consensus, but only after maybe Jewish paramilitary activity, which may have precipitated it. So that's going to be the question. Does that constitute Loyalu Bahoma? And then there's another argument that is said in the name of Rav Meir Simcha, the Orsameach. It's not in his Surim, it's in a letter. And this is an area where there's accusations and counter accusations. And some people say the letter was forged. You know, I, I can't get into that. But the argument was that if you learn the Sudya and Kisuvos, you will see that when we made the commitment, Loyalu Bahoma, 
and Lo the Umos Olam also made a Shavua that they would not uh, oppress us excessively. So, as, as a lawyer, you know that these are mutual covenants, so, or the argument goes, they are mutual covenants that are dependent on each other, and a material breach by one party relieves the other party, and since the Umos Olam have clearly violated incessantly the way they've treated us, particularly in a post in a Holocaust world, then that relieves us of any obligation of the Shavuot. So there are different types of arguments uh, that, that are made. Either we bechlau don't paskin like the Gemara, uh, that the mitzvah of Yishuv Eretz Yisrael compels Jewish sovereignty, uh, or uh, Eretz Medinat Yisrael was established by international agreements, uh, or the idea that uh, the Umot Olam, you know, did not keep their covenants, and therefore that abrogates. Now, I want to point out once again to the Satmar Rebbe's greatness. He did not ignore these arguments, meaning he was aware of these arguments, and he, you know, attempted to refute them. Some will agree with his refutation, some not. But as I say, he was not a person who failed to consider these difficulties. So, so what I'm hearing, Rabbi Breitowitz, is eluv eluv. Really, there's validity to each of the sides, and uh, you can't say one side is totally invalid, and each person could say, okay, it's 90-10 or 10-90 in favor of one or the other, but eluv eluv, divrei alakim chaim, and as we know in the Mishnah, it says that Beis Shammai and Beis Hillel, despite their divergent views, they got along, they respected each other, they even intermarried between Beis Shammai and Beis Hillel, even though they did have significant differences as to what would be a permitted marriage or not a permitted marriage. And in addition, they used each other's kalim, even though they had different views of Tuma Tahara, and they respected each other's views. So if we can transition then talking about to maybe a very different group or maybe a similar group, Naturi Karta, is there a philosophical difference between Satmer and Naturi Karta? Do I, I do feel that we do have some elu elu when it comes to Satmer, but it seems that Naturi Karta may be in a different area. Uh, this is a little complicated. Uh, Naturi Karta, Guardians of the City, um, in its origin was not a Hasidic group at all, although many of the members are Hasidim of Satmir or Munkach or whatever. And the Turekarta was a Litvisher group, uh, as it were. Uh, and uh, again, it was extremely anti-Zionist. It broke away from Agudas Yisrael. It was very interesting that uh, the great leader of the Turekarta, who was a great Sadik in many ways, Rav Ramram Blau, his brother was Rav Moshe Blau. Now, Rav Moshe Blau was in, involved in Agudas Yisrael, which did work with the government and did recognize the Medina, at least for practical purposes. I believe Rav Moshe Blau once said an interesting thing, the difference between himself and his brother, who was much more zealous, and that is, you know, the Gemara says, if you have a Nirenidachas, a city that worships Abayi Zorah, if there's even one mezuzah in the city, you spare the city. So the difference would be, if I heard of an Irani Dachas, I would rush to put up the mezuzah so the city would be spared. Uh, my brother would rush to pull down the, uh, the mezuzah so the city will be eradicated because they were showing. So there was a difference in orientation. I believe, I may be wrong, I'm not, I'm not an expert in the history of the Turicarta, but I believe that even the Turicarta has seriously degenerated in a lot of ways. Ravam Ramblau was absolutely against Medina Yisrael. He would not even use an egged bus. He would not use any hospital you know, built on uh, Jewish territory that had been taken, you know, uh, from the Arabs and the like. He was a kanoi shebekanoi, and yet he would never hit another Jew. In other words, even though he was beaten, he would never fight back. He loved every Jew. He cared about every Jew. And uh, Satmir, 
is very much the same. Uh, you know, people sometimes think, oh, Satmir, you know, hates people. Uh, Satmir's Gemilas Chesed is absolutely phenomenal. They're bricker cholim to every type of Jew, and I probably to non-Jews as well. Chesed, 24 hours a day. So to me, anti-Zionism is, should not be a contradiction to Avat Yisrael. And the hope would be, yeah, the Jewish, Jewish people are making a mistake or whatever it is, but we love and we care. The notion that the Satmir Rebbe or even Rav Amram Blau would ever, ever affiliate or connect to Hamas or uh, Sone Yisrael or even get involved in the Holocaust denial or to meet with Iran, to me would be the furthest thing in the world. I just could not believe it. Now, I think what happened basically is that um, Nituri Karta has become radicalized to such a degree that I think Satmir itself has disassociated themselves from the Turei Karta, in which they're embracing Sona Yisrael, that, that murdered babies. How, how can that be possible? Okay, let's assume that Zionists are making big mistakes. Uh, okay, you know, Jews make mistakes, but they're still your people. You still love them. You still care about them. So when it turns into Sinas Yisrael, and when it turns into embracing enemies who want to destroy, Chabad is a very good example. Let me give you a little example about Chabad. Chabad's philosophy if you go back to the 1920s, the Rebbe Rashab, Rav Shalom Bear, was essentially Satmir Nitzri Karta. He said the Gimel Shavuos can't make a Medina. Now we know, obviously, that Chabad has gotten very involved in all sorts of what you might call Zionistic activity. But I would call that pragmatic Zionism, meaning to say, yeah, maybe there shouldn't have been a state of Israel. But now you got 6 million, 7 million Jews in Israel. You got to care about them. You can't just say, oh, let's give everything back. So there's, there are certain pragmatic facts on the ground that a Bar Seichel cannot ignore. You're not going to simply say, let's turn millions of Jews over to people who want to annihilate them. I mean, it seems to be just an illusion of the good old days. They talk with nostalgia about the good old days under Arab rule, you know, Palestinian rule. Well, the good old days. I mean, we had a Hebron massacre in 1928 and and, and the like. Uh, this is a fiction. So I think there's room in halacha for paying attention to facts. I, 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 <laughs> so in a sense, to me, even anti-Zionism has an appropriate expression and an inappropriate expression. And I would say that maybe Satmir is a more appropriate expression. Nitsure Karta, I think, is a fanatical, destructive expression that is not doing any good for Am Yisrael. Right, so uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. If, if we analyze the Nitsure Karta's activities, demonstrating side by side with supporters Hamas and the Palestinian Authority and BDS, the list goes on and on, and participating in international conferences which promote Holocaust denial and visiting with Iran and meeting with its leaders who have threatened to annihilate Israel. If we talk about Chilol Hashem, or if we talk about Al-Tifrosh Minat Sibor, what are the halachic gedarim of those Chilul Hashem, Al-Tifrosh Minat Sibor? And what happens when you have a group of people or an individual or a group of people that believe they're doing the right thing, following their proper views they believe, but it's obviously going against what is accepted and consensus of Kali. So would that still be considered a Chilul Hashem? Would that still be a Al-Tifrosh Minat Sibor issue? Well, you know, again, it, it, we always have this problem of, of circularity in the sense that if they maintain that their derech is correct and we are kofrim and apikorsim, then their argument is you don't go after a majority, right? You don't go after a majority for evil things. So 
in a sense, it's very hard to address yourself uh, to Nuturi Karta. Now, one thing I will say that there will often be a blurring of discussion because often the opposition to the state will then be combined with an opposition to secular Zionism. And those are two different issues, but you'll see in the course of a three-minute discussion, it'll move into the secular nature of things, which is a different different type of problem. All I'm saying is, you know, um, I, I believe that, although I, I myself uh um, I'm not uh, uh, Satmer, and I'm, you know, I, I am in favor of, of strengthening the Medina in positive ways. But I believe that anti-Zionism is a le- legitimate shita in Am Yisrael, and there's no reason to censor it, and there's no reason to block out discussions. In fact, I'm told that a number of Zionist academics, when they have read the Satmer Rebbe's work, uh, they were shaken because the Satmar Rebbe didn't just, you know, people had this impression he was some hysterical guy just screaming at, at, at anti-Zionist demonstrations. I mean, he was a scholar, a Talmud Chacham, a learned person, a person who dealt with sources. So this is a legitimate shita to discuss. There is something to discuss. But when people turn against the Jewish nation, that is a chilul Hashem. A Jew not caring about his people. When the Rambam describes the concept of poresh minat sibur, the Rambam says, he who separates from the sibur, that's exactly the language in Pirkei Avos, al tifresh minat sibur. The Rambam says a poresh minat sibur does not have a chilek in olam haba. What does the Rambam say that means? A person who is indifferent to Jewish suffering. He doesn't care if other Jews suffer. He doesn't care if other Jews have good things happen to them. Then even if he's from, even if he's Shomer Mitzvah, he doesn't have a share in Olam because he's cutting himself off from his people. You know, I don't, I don't wish this on anybody. I don't, you know, I'm not making any pronouncements about any individual person. Um, in any individual person, there are things about a person's life that I don't know. You know, the combinatory character could also be tremendously good person in some ways. What I can say favorably is that that particular fringe is crazy. That's how I judge them. I don't, I don't call them evil. I say they are misguided. They are crazy. They are allowing a certain idea to take themselves over to such a degree that they don't focus on anything else. And a single-minded obsession with a particular idea can be very, very destructive when you fail to consider other aspects that are even more important. Now, I remember my own Rosh Hashiva Rav Ruderman, who was not, I mean, he was, he was not um, Turi Karten in any way, but, you know, like, like, like the Rosh Hashivas, he was not a Zionist person, uh, but, but he collaborated uh, with a, a, a Zioni rabbi on something. I don't remember what it was. It was before I was in there, Israel. I heard about it. And when someone asked him, how can you collaborate with uh, the Zionist rabbi? And he said, hey, we have a disagreement on one of the 613 mitzvahs, but we agree on the other 612. So why shouldn't I work with him on areas that we can work with? And by the way, maybe I shouldn't comment on this, but recently from the Litvisha camp here in Eretz Israel, there was uh, a respected Rosh Hashiva, not not even a Turi Karta, who kind of said, you know, Zionists are bad and Yishmael is bad, but at least Yishmael are our cousins. Uh, with the Zionists, the Chayalim, we have nothing to do with it all. What a ridiculous thing to say. No, it's just unbelievable. I, it's just unbelievable. How can people talk that way? And then I think back to Rav Chaim Shmulevitz, and I think back about the notion of Hakara Satov, even to secular Jews, for risking their lives and doing things for Am Yisrael. What type of person develop such an uncaring heart, such a cold heart, such a lack of care. It's a chaval, it's a tragedy. Aye, aye. 
tragedy. It's a tragedy. And this is what Talmudim and, and many yeshivas are getting exposed to. That's, that's not what we need to be hearing. And that's not what we should be thinking at this point, or at any point for that matter. <laughs> and I, I think if you go back to the, the, the at least what I regard, the, the genuine, genuine Gedalim, Rav Chaim Shbelevitz, Rav uh, Shlomo Zalman Orbach, I think you'll see that whatever their official position was about Zionism, when it came to caring about Jews, that was it. You always care. You do what you can. You pray for them. You help them. You have hakara satov to them for what they're doing for Am Yisrael. And that means something. And without those attitudes, we're, we are a Polish Menatsivar. And the Rambam says potentially that could mean Ein lanu which is not to be taken lightly. Rabbi Reiter, with your, your chilek between crazy and evil is very interesting. It, it comes to mind when people are facilitating something positive. Uh, the Mishnah talks about that they uh, have scars. And uh, obviously we have a concept that somebody who assists or enables other to do a mitzvah, for example, tzedakah, somebody who inspires other to give tzedakah, it's even a, a greater mitzvah. So we have the, the reverse here when it comes to Naturi Karta, we have people who may be inspiring and supporting those who hate Klal Yisrael to continue in their approaches of death and destruction. And the question is, when does somebody, we have the concept of Messiah for doing an Avera, when does somebody have a Dean of a Rodev? And, and this doesn't necessarily have to be a conversation of a Halachic Rodev. We could maybe invent a phrase of a Hashkafic Rodev, even if uh, it doesn't have a Dean of a Halachic Rodev. Is that how we should be thinking about the Naturai Karta? Well, I, I want to be absolutely clear, as uh, you clarified in the question itself, that uh, we're not speaking about halakhic rodfim under no circumstances. Should God forbid uh, anyone employ any violence against a member of Nitori Karta? I, I want to be absolutely clear that I'm not advocating that. I am absolutely against that. We should try to be Makari of Nitori Karta as well. <laughs> bring them bring them to their senses. But yeah, I, I think there is a concept of Hashkafic Rodev, one who uh, who supports, who legitimates, who is machazek, those who want to destroy Am Yisrael, you know, are, are acting in a matter of Radifa. They are there, they are at least in maybe not posing the threat, but Khalapakot encouraging the threat, validating, validating what Hamas is doing, validating what Iran, Iran is the Abiy Abu Satuma here, uh, validating what Iran is doing. How can you do that? You're going to sit with Hitler and say, uh, oh, uh, since most of the Jews in the concentration camps are not religious, uh, you know, whatever it is, uh, let them let them go to the gas chambers. Is that is that is that the attitude that you have towards towards another Jew, towards another human being? And I want to point out a, a point that Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky used to say generally. It's a very general point. And he said, you know, when you kind of get rid of your sensitivity to people, like the non-from don't count, the Zionists don't count, this group doesn't count, eventually. It's going to permeate even towards your fellow religious Jew. You can't allow yourself to, to allow those feelings of humanity, of Abbas Yisrael, to atrophy and harden. Because don't think it'll be limited only to those who are outside of your little group. It'll, it'll permeate your group as well. And that, you know, unfortunately, that's what's going to happen. Yeah, and the group keeps coming smaller and smaller. As you're negative towards others, you're going to be negative to more and more people, even those that you used to be positive towards. That's correct. That's correct. The, the, the circle of hatred expands and expands and expands.
Rabbi Breidowitz, I, I recently saw an article that somebody was approached for tzedakah. I don't remember who it was. Maybe it was in London. I'm not sure. And he recognized the individual as a member of Notori Karta because they pop up everywhere. They're on videos and here and there protesting against the state of Israel. And he said, I'm not giving you tzedakah. So the question is, we we have people who are probably needing Notori Karta and they're not going to, if they live in the state of Israel, they're not allowed to take any funds from the state of Israel. Is that a bona fide reason to not give tzedakah because somebody is a member of Notori Karta and somebody who is in fact protesting against Israel in public. So that's why he was recognized. And if so, if that is a reason to not give, would we be permitted to set up a website? We can say the headlines dot not, you know, whatever Notori Karta don't give and put the pictures of the, of the people that we should not be donating to. You know, it, it is a hard question. Now, obviously, if somebody is collecting for a Nituri Karta activity, you, you obviously uh, don't have to give money for that, that's for sure. It gets more complicated when you're talking about a person who happens to be poor. You know, he needs the money uh, for his rent. He needs the money for the food, but he happens to be in Nituri Karta. Uh, so it's very, very tricky. Uh, I suppose that even if you were to characterize him as a Russian, and, and I say there may be a question about that, uh, you know, even a re- Russia does not necessarily necessarily forfeit the basic claims for survival uh, and 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 the like. So I would tend to be lenient, and particularly if you accept my characterization that they might be sick or misguided rather than Rishayim, perhaps they do deserve to survive, and 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 I, I would help them with their with their basic needs. But I wouldn't uh, give to their institutions, uh, including their yeshivas. I would not give to any activity that they're involved in, any, any publication activity. But I, I think I would draw the line on things that are literally matters of survival. Now that sounds like a heter. Would there be a chiyuv to assist them, even a small amount? I don't think there's a chiyuv, actually. And when people are porish midarchi at sibor, I think Shulchan Aruch actually says that there's no chiyuv to give them stuck. Okay, very good. Rabbi Abreitowitz, one last question, but this is a personal question. Personal question to Rabbi Yitzhak Abreitowitz. What does Zionism mean to you, and do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing? What Zionism, Zionism has many, many different meanings, and some of those meanings are good and some of those meanings are bad. Uh, so obviously, I, I cannot endorse every meaning of Zionism that's out there. Uh, for me, and maybe Zionism is the wrong word, maybe we shouldn't use the word precisely because it has so many connotations, but it means that uh, you believe uh, in building up Eretz Israel not only in a Ruchnius way, but even the physical building of the land is a way of fulfilling a mitzvah like the Ramban, and it's a way of strengthening an infrastructure that can allow spiritual growth. The Grah, as he is quoted in the Sefer Kovatur, written by Rav Hillel of Shklov, the Talmud of the Grah, uh, very much talked about the notion of the physical binyan ha'aretz as a precursor to Geula. So I see Zionism in a positive way as, number one, encouraging Jews to come to Eretz Israel, and number two, encouraging Jews, uh, by money or otherwise, to physically build up this land in productive and constructive ways. And of course, obviously, to create create greater spirituality. And I see Zionism as a way of uniting Jews, even if they're not fully religious, in a common endeavor. You know, Rav Cook used to say that some people come to Eretz Israel because of their relationship to God, and others will come to God through their relationship to Eretz Israel. And uh, therefore, uh, Rav Cook felt that the Zionistic impulse, even on the part of a secular Jew, ultimately came from a holy place. And if you nurture that flame in a good way, it can turn into very positive directions. So um, I recognize that Zionism has many, many, many problems. 
Uh, and, you know, we're still struggling after more than 70 years uh, with these problems. But I think there's a potential for good that has to be recognized. And uh, the Pasuk and Mishle is something that's very important. Kamayim apanim opanim, kein leiv adam liadam. As water reflects the face that you show it, so too the heart of man reflects the face that you show it. I look at a reflecting pool of water. If I smile at the water, I get a smiling face. If I frown at the water, I get a frowning face. So too the heart of man reflects. I show a chiloni Zionist. I show him respect. I show him a kares I show him, I understand you're also doing something good. Then his heart is going to be open to see what I stand for. So if you want to bring people to Torah, you want to bring people to God, you don't do it by denigrating them. You don't do it by being mabatal them. You do it by cherishing and validating the good that they're doing. And then and only then are they going to be open to you. And, you know, I think that that Pasuk of Shlomo Amalek, the wisest of all people, is a very, very valuable insight in diffusing religious and secular tensions. Very beautiful. Rabbi Breitowitz, I want to thank you so much for joining us. As I said, when we started, it's always a privilege and pleasure speaking with you, and I look forward to next time. Thank you so much. Uh, Joining us now is Rabbi Pinny Dunner. Rabbi Dunner is originally from London. Now he's a rabbi in Los Angeles. He's also a popular speaker, a historian, and also an author. Rabbi Dunner, thank you so much for joining us. Such a pleasure to be with you, Rabbi Ari, and thank you so much for inviting me on the program. It is a pleasure, Rabbi Dunner. Rabbi Dunner, I'd like to just walk you through what we'll talk about, and then we'll go step by step. I'd like to cover three different areas, Zionism, Satmer, and Eture Karts, and maybe we'll take them chronologically, at least what I think is chronologically. So why don't we start with Zionism? And and the fundamental question that I constantly have on my mind, because you hear the phrase Zionism coming up here and there and everywhere, what's the original concept? What's the definition, the original definition of Zionism, and when did it all start? I'm going to start at the, at the wrong end of my answer, which I do tend to do. Uh, and that is, I'm going to tell you what Zionism isn't. It isn't what there is today. So anybody who refers to Jewish people as Zionists today because they support the state of Israel have got completely the wrong end of the stick. Because those Jewish people today who support the state of Israel may or may not subscribe to what Zionism was about before 1948. But what they really are is supporting the largest concentration of Jewish people in the world. And guess where they live? They live in Eretz Yisrael. So if you uh, support the infrastructure politically, economically, in any way, shape or form of what's going on currently in the land of Israel, Eretz Yisrael, which is also known as Medinat Yisrael, it doesn't make you a Zionist. So that's the, the wrong end of the answer. Now we'll go to the beginning of the answer, what Zionism is. Zionism is a uh, movement that began in the late 1800s. I'm going to get more specific in a moment. And the idea was to create a nationalist movement that saw as its end game the uh, repopulation of the area known as Eretz Yisrael. At that time, it was known as Palestine. It was an obscure um, region of the Ottoman Empire um, to repopulate it with the Jews from around the world. And there was different reasons for people to become Zionists, which we'll also talk about. And originally, it wasn't known as Zionism. It was known as Chibas Tzioin. And later on, the people who were who were who belonged to that movement were known as Chivavetzion. What does that mean? It means lovers of Zion. Why they chose Zion and not um, Israel? In other words, why weren't they called Chibas Yisrael or Chibas Chivavet Yisrael? I don't really know. That that's lost in the mystery 
um, of time and the mists of time. But uh, the fact is that that's what they were known as. In Eventually, there was a person called Nathan Birnbaum who coined the phrase or the, the idea in the early uh, 1890s um, called Zionism. So the movement became known as Zionism only much later on. But in the 1880s, it wasn't called Zionism. And it wasn't until Theodor Herzl, who will come to as well, wrote a book called Judenstaat, which means state for the Jews, not Jewish state, as it's uh, often translated, um, that the Zionism took off as a political movement. Initially, it was a settlement movement. And its key figure, uh, two figures, really, one was called Leon Pinsker, and the other one was called Achad Ha'am. His name was actually Asher Tzvi Hirsch Ginsburg. I'm going to talk a lot about him, because if you want to know why Satmar and the Turikata hate Zionism, it all began with this character called Achad Ha'am. Uh, um, Usha Shayevich, that was his, the, how he was referred to by his friends. His father was Shaya Ginsburg, and his name was Usha Ginsburg. That's how they pronounced it in the Chassidish home that he was brought up in. He was born in a town called Skver, uh, which is very well known today because the Skver Hasidim. Um, but he didn't come from a Skvera family, he came from a Sadigera family. His Chadam uh, grew up with Pais and with an unshaved beard and with all the different um, bells and whistles that one would expect from a Chassidish home. You see a picture of his father, he looked like a Chassidish Yid. It was a Chassidish Yid. As a young kid, in his teenage years, he began, he taught himself Russian. He was a highly intelligent man. And he began to read much more widely. And he had private teachers because his father had moved to a village outside Square. And in fact, I don't know exactly how far away it was from Square, but he they moved elsewhere. And he had a private, uh, like a farm, and they would bring people in for Minyan for Shabbos. And he had private teachers. Uh, you know, it was like a little village set up, which was owned by his father, a very wealthy family. And he drifted away from normative Yiddishkeit. But here's, here's a key. I mean, I could give you much more detail, but let me just tell you, he married a great granddaughter of the Tzemach Tzedek, which means he married to a Schneerson. But let me tell you about Chata Am. He's a brilliant man. He had money, although later on he lost his money and he worked for the Wisotsky Tea Company in London. He lived in London for about 20 years. But um, before that, he lived in Odessa and he gathered around him a coterie of intellectuals or some of them were pseudo intellectuals, but all very brilliant people who were, had drifted away from normative Yiddishkeit, weren't maskilim in the strict sense of that word, but was certainly not interested in furthering the ends of normative Yiddishkeit. I call it Shulchan Aruch Judaism. And uh, they had their own kind of community. They weren't reformed Jews. They weren't really you know, intellectual Jews. They were Hebraists. They loved writing in Hebrew and communicating with each other in Hebrew. Uh, and they, they published articles in this very high highfalutin English, uh, Hebrew, which, you know, it's when you read it, it's like really stiff Loshan HaKodesh. And he was a, a, a very good writer. And he became interested in, in Chibas Tzion, in the Chibas Tzion movement. And he felt that there was a grave error in trying to get settlements set up in Palestine. He says they, they cannot make money and they always need to be supported by the Rothschilds and various other famous um, uh, Jewish aristocrats and by you know collection boxes around Europe. He says it's a terrible mistake because the Jewish people is not ready yet to move to Eretz Yisrael. We need to get them ready. And how are we going to get them ready? By shifting 
our um, ideals from strict observance of Yiddishkeit to something which is much more nationalistic in its approach. That means we need to build up the national spirit of the Jewish people. The Jewish people is dispersed, and Lithuanian Jews are very busy with being Litvaks, and Russian Jews are very busy with being Russischen, and German Jews are very uh, busy being Yekas. We need to build something which which creates um, a uniformity among the Jewish people, and that is a national ideal and a national ideology and a culture. He was the first person to come up with this idea of a Tarbuti Judaism that's really based around the culture. He said, but don't have to do away with the Torah. The Torah is, I mean, as an ethical book, it's got a lot to teach us, but that shouldn't be the center of what it means to be Jewish. Once we've created this kind of Jew, then we'll be ready to go on mass immigration to Eretz because then we'll all be able to integrate. So he was kind of, in a way, reversing the Tower of Bovel concept, because what had happened to the Jewish people is they dispersed and become very different from each other. The only thing they shared in common was religion. But religion is not enough of, of um, a unifying bond to keep everyone together. That's why everybody's always fighting with everybody. They become very territorial. And very... He wanted to create something which was much more united. And they're going to unite around this theme of loving Eretz Yisrael and eventually having prepared themselves by teaching themselves to speak and write Hebrew and by all kinds of other national um, things that they would do, they would be ready to move en masse to Eretz Yisrael. I love, that, I love that comparison or the reverse of the Tower of Babel. That's very interesting. Fascinating, isn't it? He was trying to create a new Judaism. Okay, so that's, that's the theory of Zionism. That's the that theory. That was the original theory before Theodor Herzl. In fact, he couldn't stand Theodor Herzl because when Theodor Herzl came along, he said, Enough with this. This is all lovely, but it's airy-fairy. It's never going to work. And we've got an urgent task at hand because Jews are being persecuted. We need a homeland. And he starts with political Zionism. What I've just told you is cultural Zionism. It's it's very interesting, but it's, you know, it's a project. It could take 50 years. Political Zionism, he saw as a much more immediate need. We need to create the possibility of Jews living in Eretz Yisrael in a state of their own so that they have a national identity, even if they're not all the same as each other. And uh, political Zionism is the way to go. After the first Zionist Congress in 1897, Achada Am stormed out of the Zionist movement and became sort of a grumpy um, eminence grise in the Zionist world. And there was a faction that were supporters of Achada Am and a faction who were supporters of Theodor Herzl. After, so I'm now, I'm shooting ahead. In the early 1900s, there was this discussion, 1903, 1905, as to the Uganda project, whether or not, if Eretz Yisrael is unavailable, whether the Jewish people can have a state of their own in one of the places that was suggested was Uganda. That's what's the most famous. And it wasn't the only place that was suggested. And Theodor Herzl came out, came out for the Uganda project. It basically spelt the end of his tenure. And he died a year later. He died in 1904 at the age of 44, spent the, it meant the end of his um, strong leadership of the Zionist movement, and there was a vacuum. That vacuum was filled by Talmidim of Achad Ha'am. He kind of came back into the Zionist movement, but by that time he was an old man, um, and he, he was, uh, he'd, become, he'd been grumpy for such a long period of time that it wasn't possible, possible for him to re-emerge as the leader. And other people took his place, most famously Chaim Weizmann. And what they did was, is they created a hybrid of political Zionism 
and cultural Zionism. So they took a lot of the ideas that Achad Ahmad came up with, and they then they blended that with political Zionism, and they said what we need to do now is to create the possibility of a culturally nationalized Jewish people who are ready for to politically control the area that's known as Eretz Yisrael. Walk uh, us through the, the Satmar, the major beliefs, the major tenets of Satmar as it relates to the secular Zionistic movement. Bro- broadly speaking, the idea that Jews are going to have a political control of any territory in Eretz Yisrael before the arrival of Mashiach is an anathema to Satmar. And I have to tell you, the Satmar Rebbe before the war was a very great Chassidish Rebbe in his region, but he wasn't well known beyond it. I mean, he, he certainly had no followers in uh, Poland or in Lithuania or in America. There was no such, there was no Satmar Chassidus at all. He was the Rav of Satmar, and in his region, he was considered a very influential individual. And he kept on saying the same thing, that uh, the sources in the Gemara and in um, in all different rabbinic sources that show that any kind of political control, the attempt to take control of Eretz Yisrael before Mashiach comes, is preventing Mashiach from coming. And therefore it's wrong, it's theologically wrong. We quoted the Sholash Shavuos, it's a Gemara and Ksubis, he, you know, as, as one of the proofs, it's very unusual to use Nagadata as uh, the source for a halachic psak, but he did it. And um, I'm, I'm not sure whether it was the strength of the halacha or whether it was the conviction that this felt wrong, but many people were convinced by it and were drawn to it. And slowly but surely, particularly after 1956, when the Hungarian revolution, many Jews fled Hungary and managed to come to the West. Many arrived in America and his community grew in leaps and bounds. And suddenly you had a Jewish center outside of Eretz Yisrael, which was extremely religious and very dedicated to its leader and particularly fond of this anti-Zionist, as they refer to it, um, ideology which was, we cannot cooperate in any way, shape, or form with the authorities in Eretz Yisrael. And they began to raise money, um, and they still raise it on a regular basis. They raise money for Kahilas in Eretz Yisrael who refuse to cooperate with the state. You've got... Uh, um, because they need the support. Because they need the support. They need, it's not taking they're, not, the they're not taking money from the state. So, Rabbi Dunner, let me ask you, let's transition from Satmar over to Naturi Karta. How did Naturi Karta start, and what were their fundamental beliefs? The original Naturi Karta emerged out of the um, Talmidi Hagra element, the Purushim of Eretz Yisrael. Um, they, um, they were very opposed to the Aguda vote in 1937 in Marinbad. Um, they felt that that was, um, that they'd surrendered to a horrific proposal, which was to cooperate with the Zionists in the event that a state was created. And they created a movement which eventually became known as the Turikata, which was the extreme end of the Aguda movement. It was started by Rabbi Amram Bloy, Rabbi Aaron Katzen-Ellenbeugen. Rabbi Amram Bloy's brother was the leader of Aguda in Eretz Yisrael, and Rabbi Amram Bloy had also been part of Tzir Agudis Yisrael, and he left and they started the Turikata, which means, it's an Aramaic term, it means guardians of the city. Um, and if you know the Chazal, guardians of the city means that if you guardians of the city are, are the Bnei Torah. So if you're a Ben Torah, you don't need to be a soldier to be a guardian of the city. You don't have to have a gun. 
What you need to be is the guardian of the city. You need to be somebody who's a Shemitah, a mitzvah, 100%, everything you do, 100%. They said the only way that Eretz Yisrael can survive is this, if we don't have any connection with, any association with Zionists. And we can't even associate ourselves with people who associate with Zionists because they are tarnished by Zionism, by which they meant that any secular Jewish organization within Eretz Yisrael that is involved with the government, and also ha- the, the Haredim and Eretz Yisrael are involved with them, those Haredim are muktzah machmasmius. Can't have anything to do with them. Nothing. So it, now, it sounds like we have two parallel movements then, Satmer yeah. and the Turi Karta, and there were other, others as well. And they were Hasidim. At that stage, they were not Hasidim. Amra Bloy was not a Hasid. Um, he, he didn't come from a Hasidic background at all. And the Eid Haredis was not a Hasidish Abezdin. It was the it was the organized community of the Purushim in Yerushalayim. Now, in London, there was a man called Rav Don. He laid the groundwork for the radical wing of Naturikata, which we are now all familiar with. And that came much later. That Naturikata probably uh, only really emerged in the 70s and 80s. There was a man called Moshe Berbeck in Monsi. He was originally from Yerushalayim. Um, and he moved to America, and there were a few Mushigayim in Williamsburg and a few Mushigayim in London. Not that many of them. You know, people always think there's so many of them because they always see pictures of them because the cameras love Nuritorikata, Hebra, they're dressed like Hasidim, and they're wearing um, Palestinian kafirs. So, I mean, it's, it's a perfect photo opportunity every time, but it's always the same people. It's the same, probably a couple of hundred people in the entire world who are Nuritorikata, but they make themselves very prominent because they've got these disgusting signs and a burning Israeli flags alongside Palestinians who are screaming from the river to the sea. And no one hates them more than Satmar. Why is that? Because everyone cross-identifies the Turikata with Satmar. So, so walk us through, compare the ideologies and practices of Satmar versus Naturi Karta so we can fully understand why Satmar is not in favor of Naturi Karta. So what I'm about to tell you is, I think, opaque, but I'm sure if you went to Naturikata and you could actually get them in a moment where they're not just propagandizing, or if you went to Satmar and the same thing, you'd hear that there are nuances that I'm probably missing. But I'll give you a broad picture. Satmar is not interested in the destruction of the state of Israel. They talk about it. They talk about all the wrongs and ills of the state of Israel, but they're not interested, you know, I, I recently, during the war that uh, we're still in the middle of, tragically, um, in Borough Park, there was Tfilis, um in all the different Tfilis and even joint Tfilis groups and Tehillim groups for the success of Israel against their enemies. Now, they don't talk about Israel. They don't say the Tfilis for Tzahal or anything like that. But clearly, there's no one in Satmar who's rooting for Hamas, if you understand what I mean. So... They want Israel to be successful. They recognize this is the biggest Jewish um, settlement in Jewish history since the time of the Beis HaMikdash, where 7 million Jews live in Eretz Yisrael, and like it or hate it, they are guarded by the IDF. And then we're going to say Tehillim. Uh, we're going to say Tehillim without mentioning the IDF, and we're not going to talk about the government of Israel when we talk about the fact that we want people in Israel to be safe. But the sentiment is Israel must be safe. And in the hands of Hamas, 
they're not going to be safe. Now, if you speak to the ideologists within summer, they'll say Israel puts itself in danger because theologically Israel shouldn't exist. The only reason why Hamas is attacking Israel is because Hashem is punishing us, whatever they would say. But broadly speaking, the attitude would be, we need the IDF to be successful, even if they're not using those words. Naturi Carter does not believe in that. So they'll try and weasel their way out of it by saying, we don't want Jews to die. But meanwhile, they're quite happy to link arms with people who do want Jews to die. And they're quite happy to publicly declare that Israel shouldn't exist in a way that's seen by the non-Jewish world. So they seem to be, I mean, they're no different than in, in a way that the worst excesses of, of J Street or Jewish Voice for Palestine or whatever these groups are called, these are secular groups, they um, essentially believe that Israel shouldn't exist and any attack on Israel is a good thing, even if people die. That's the way Hashem is telling us that Israel needs to be dismantled and it must be dismantled right now. It, it sounds like that that the ideologies are similar, nuanced, but similar, but the practice is very different. Correct. So I, that's why I said it's opaque. Rabbi Donner, one more question with for you. Let's get back to Zionism. Has the concept, clearly the concept has changed over time. We talked about it, but what does it mean today? If somebody says I'm a Zionist or not, is there a definition or is it amorphous and it really doesn't have a definition nowadays? So I, I, I don't think, I think an Israeli patriot or or a lover of the concept of the state of Israel would be a better, it's just not as catchy. Zionist is a great word to use. Um, but what you're referring to in using the, the very short definition I've just given you, I'll tell you what it means. It means that I believe that Hashem gave us the land of Israel as the promised land of the Jewish people, and that it is our duty and our right to live there or to support the people who live there or to defend or fight for the defense of the people who live there. So it's not a political ideology anymore. It's a Jewish ideology in the sense that I have an affinity and a loyalty to the land of Israel as the land of my heritage. That's really what Zionism means. Now, within that framework, you can define yourself as you want to. Some people can say, I'm pro the settlements in Judea and Samaria. And some people can say, no, I'm not, because it's not such a good idea. Um, some people can say, um, I believe in a kind of a very religious government. And some people say, no, it's better to have a broader government that everybody feels represented. Some people can even believe in a theocracy. Some people can believe in a democracy. Everybody's got a room within that definition to believe what they want and we'll work it out. And it's complicated because life is complicated and people evolve. And some people think one way 10 years ago and feel differently now and will feel differently in 10 years time. But broadly within the definition of being loyal to the to the Jewish control and hegemony over the land of Israel, that's really what Zionism means. Rabbi Donner, I want to thank you so much for joining us. We've covered so much ground and I've learned a tremendous amount. Thank you so much for the education. I appreciate being uh, on your show and I really enjoyed it and I hope the listeners do too. Thank you so much. Joining us now is Rabbi Dr. David Fox. Rabbi Fox is a Dayan, is a forensic and clinical psychologist, and he is also the director of Crisis and Trauma Services for High Lifeline. Rabbi Fox, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ravari. It's uh, an honor to be speaking with you again. Thank you so much. So, Rabbi Fox, our show today has been about 
Satmar, Nitari Karta, but maybe it's best if we globalize it because we'll talk about extremism, but uh, this is not something that's endemic only to Nitari Karta. So maybe it would be helpful if we talk in general. What causes extremism? Well, we are certainly seeing that not only in Kalal Yisrael, but even more so elsewhere with Hamas, for example. Their brutality is such that we have, at least in modern history, never seen something like that. So we're seeing it outside. We're seeing it inside. It's not only Nitori Karta. We've seen it with rallies or protests on the streets and high ways of Israel, people trying to get their way and rallying. So what causes extremism? Where does this come from? Okay, well, first, let me interject that I am very comfortable with the broad scope of this discussion rather than focusing on a particular faction. And this is very important to me professionally and personally, because I believe that the Jewish people at this point needs all the cohesiveness and fraternity as we can. Uh, the idea of breaking into factions or fragmenting our actus is very damaging to us, I think, spiritually, metaphysically, and psychologically. So let's allow me, please, to keep this more general. So let's begin first with the expression extremism. Um, we use the term extremism, fanaticism, uh, radicalization. And although they may sound synonymous to some, they are very different concepts. Something I've done throughout my professional career is to study the social psychology and the sociology of social conflict. And I've looked very, very uh, carefully at the research and the studies, what happens to people, nations, cultures, civilizations, when there are um, splinter groups. And extremism is ideological, which means that a person can maybe be concrete or a literalist or sometimes to read into a doctrine or to a dogma, a view which relative to the mainstream or the consensus is an extreme perception, extreme take on an idea or a doctrine. And we call that extremism, which can be quite benign. People can have extreme views and people generally do. There is that mythological bell curve, which means that the large majority of people will view things in a certain way. And then as we move to the bookends of that population, you'll find people who have a diluted view and people who have an extreme view in the other direction. Um, I don't think... Are, are you're saying that this, this abnormality is normal? There is, a, there is a spectrum of perception. There is a spectrum of how people interpret information. And it's normal to find that there are a small segment of people who move towards an extreme interpretation, um, which is fine. However, when the extreme conceptual framework leads to a change in behavior, behavior that's not mainstream, that's not consensual, then we begin thinking about fanaticism or we think about radicalization. The difference being that the fanatic not only holds the extreme view, but using a term which we use to define cults, their belief is that if you're not for us, you're against us, which means if you don't share our extreme concept or conceptual framework, then you are the enemy. So that's where the extreme view turns into fanaticism and into radicalization, which almost always is going to result in aggression, in violence, in hostility, because those who disagree with me are wrong. 
They need to be vanquished. They need to be subdued. And this is the problem. It's not so much the ideology, but it's where a person takes the ideology, what he does. It's the behavior. So we have ideology, which reflects extremism. You can have extreme ideology. That's not necessarily going to lead to behavior. But when somebody acts on the ideology, that leads on to radicalism and fanaticism. Yeah. Now, let's go back to your question now that we've introduced some definitions. So what is it that leads to extreme acting out or to fanatic behavior? So there's an old saying. uh, It's a humorous saying. I think it's from Ambrose Bierce, the famous cynic. And I think he said that a fanatic is a person who does what he believes God would do if only God had the facts straight. So in other words, that so much of the time, the extreme ideology, which leads to fanaticism, is anchored in a religious system, which means that not only me, not only do I believe that my views are right and yours are wrong, but I believe I'm doing what God wants. And that's why so much of the time the fanatic is a religious fanatic. That's why so much of the time the terrorist is not only a political terrorist, but he or she is part of a religious faction who really believes they're doing God's work. Um, the dynamic the group dynamic. I'm not talking now psychoanalytically about what would draw you or me or someone else into such a movement, but what draws the movements in terms of the social psychology. Typically, we're dealing with people um, who have excessive aggression, and they want to funnel or channel their aggression into something which they believe will further their cause. There are many people with extreme views who are not ipso facto angry people or zealous people. They keep to themselves and they may believe their views are superior, uh, but that might be benign. But the moment I have a group who has an extreme view and believes that either this is God's will or they believe that other people are foolish um, or they're, they're not they're not sophisticated, you'll think back towards... Uh, the 1960s, Charles Manson, that particular cult, they're very much not a God-based group, but they're a group who believed that we needed to politically turn over the world order. And to do that, we needed to kill a lot of people. So so typically, the, the person who takes these extreme fanatic and radical, radical positions, whether they're fueled by religious zealousness or they're fueled by some other motivation, typically, they have a lot of anger. And they're going to use that anger to further their cause. And this is why radical movements are very generally dangerous movements. Uh-huh. Now that's talking about the movement. Uh, when it comes to the individuals making up the movements, is there a specific personality type which is more at risk? Is it the, those more angry individuals or is there something else more fundamental in a personality type that would draw somebody to an extremist view and to a group of fanatics? Okay. So let's answer that by taking a look at a truism, meaning a reality which which is generally quite true when we look at what we'll call these splinter or these fringe groups. And that is that they really don't have leadership, which means that in splintering away from the mainstream, they are also running or operating contrary to the views of those who the rest of the group, the rest of that culture, that society, would regard as its religious mentors or its political uh, exemplars. Uh, So generally, we're dealing with people who don't care about what the conventional leaders are saying. They're not doing this with the imprimatur or the encouragement generally of a great religious leader, a great figure. 
or they'll appoint themselves as a sort of pseudo-religious leader. Uh, but in, in, in our terminology, we would say they're not doing this with the haskama or the hanhaga of the Godoli Hador. They're breaking away. So now, what would attract a person to get into a movement that really runs contrary to Das Torah, runs contrary to the idea that we have a Torah system that is directed by the Manhige Hador, the recognized little leader, what would lead a person to do that? So what we often find among persons who get into such movements is that they're struggling with their own inadequacies. They're struggling with what we proverbially would call inferiority. Uh, they're jealous people. They feel that they really deserve greater grandeur, greater respect, greater recognition, and they don't get that from within their group, either because they're not as bright, or because they're not as wealthy, or because they're not as handsome, or because they don't have good communication or social skills, and therefore they become sort of self-appointed, and it becomes an artificial pumping up of that self-confidence, or that feeling that I, in fact, am superior, because I become the sort of the king of my own hill. I created my own hill. So we do find that uh, we also do find persons, and I don't want to get into diagnostic terms on this broadcast, uh, but we have people who really struggle existentially. They don't have a well-developed sense of self. Um, they may have gone through some trauma. They may have been exposed to some radical parenting, or they might have had other situations um, where their own personal development has been stunted. Um, and they are angry kids, in adult clothing. Um, so we do have those, uh, not only insecure types, but inferior types. So the people who really don't have a strong identity, and they form an identity by attachment to a group. Um, you have an identity, I have an identity, and then we also have group affiliations. There are other people who don't have a strong sense of self, and they can form that by becoming part of a conglomerate of people who think and act and dress the same way that they do. So this is something we'll also find among those who are attracted to these groups. Uh, we also have to recognize um, that besides the angry people, the inferior feeling people, and the people without a strong developed sense of self, you do have religious zealots, which means that they're doing this because they believe that this is what God demands of them. And it, sometimes it's a way of this person jumping into the cauldron of their own drives their own impulses, their own urges, their own rage, their own violent fantasies, and then they find a way of creating them into that ideology. So they become kosher, which means my rage is no longer rage. My rage is now the vengeful wrath of God himself. It's a mitzvah. Maybe if they believe that some people it's a believe it's a mitzvah, they, they believe that this is the right way to be. So, so we're generally not dealing with the gentle, loving caring people. And and the horror of this is that where extreme views become radical, where they become fanatic, we are invariably seeing that there is hatred, which means a, a, a new product comes of this. It's not only the zealous aggressiveness, but it also becomes an abject hatred for people who don't agree or who think differently. Um, and that, um, that, that is one of the most pathological, ugliest parts of a fringe group, that they're not only fueled by the zealousness and the aggression, but they take on this hatefulness 
towards people who are meant to be their allies. Uh -huh. So if we have individuals that don't listen to Gdoli Ador, if they don't listen to the dictates, requirements of the Torah, if they don't care about social norms, independent of the Gdoli Ador and the Torah, but they don't care about social pastor or being liked or adhering to what would be acceptable by normal people, do these individuals, these groups, do they have any limitations or do they simply maintain their motivation by having a goal and regardless of any limitations that would have had initially, they become more and more extreme, pushing the limits over time? Well, let's take a look at an interesting word in Hebrew. Let's take a look at the word taiva, taava. Most of us would translate that as some type of impulsive passion, uh, some type of lustful impulse. You take a look etymologically at the word tava, and we keep running into this expression that shows up a few times in Hormish, uh, ta'avas givas olam, to the far horizons, the far reaches of those eternal mountains. And the Kasava Hakabal actually writes this, this is not my own finish, that a taiva means a person who sees this elusive goal and is willing and able to step over limits, to bend rules, to go to more and more extreme distances to get what he's seeking. And that's what the word tava means, to, to break through the limits and to go as far as you can go. And this seems to be the fuel of what we're going to call a radical faction. The social psychology of a radical faction is that the moment we're violating the consensus, the moment we're saying that we're going to prioritize, say, one type of mitzvah over another, the moment that we're going to make a sort of dogma that says that what is important is this cause or is this goal, um, it's not uncommon to find that there's no sense of consequence when they're violating other rules, that in the pursuit of that extreme distant horizon goal, um, they'll step on other things. So I would not generally, generally, when I look at a radical faction, let's say it's within a religious group of whatever whatever faith system, faith system. Um, I would not generally say that these are people who are machmir about al halacha. I would not say that these are people who are highly educated Talmud Chachamim or in their own religion, uh, biblical scholars or whatever their faith is. Um, it's not that we're going to say that this is a person who ideologically is machmir. Because ideologically machmir that can work out quite benevolently. That can work out fine that I don't step on your toes, but allow me to do my thing. But but we're really not talking about piety. We're not talking about righteousness. We're not talking about a person who you look at them and say, he or she is my exemplar, they're my mentor, they're my role model for becoming a holy person. They instead might just be a model for how to have a holy war, which is what the Crusades and the pogroms and the Inquisition also were. But there's nothing which you and I consensually would say is halig, is holy, is sanctified, is sacred about their behavior or about their thinking or about their conduct. So yes, there is a taiva, and once we go past certain consensual rules, um, it's like, and I'm going to misquote a chazal, it's almost like mumma ledaver echad, mumma lekolatorakul, and again, I don't mean that as a psak, but it is sort of that type of thinking. We go into that downward spiral, that snowball, that avalanche, that once we take out rules and limitations, anything can fall prey to my radical ideology. Right. Well, Rabbi Fox, I want to thank you so much for joining us. A lot of insights. Really appreciate all of them and all your experience that you have over, over the decades that you've been studying these areas. Thank you so much. 
May I offer one more thought? Absolutely. We recently read in Chumash about the rift between the followers of Lot and the followers of Avram. And then out of no place, the Torah tells us something it's told us a few kapitulach before, namely, v'hakanani v'haprizi az ba'aretz. And we wonder, why is the Torah giving us this geographical historical note after talking about Avram and Lot and their rivalry and their enmity, or at least the enmity of their followers and shepherds? So if you take a look in the Sforno, and you take a look in the Abarbanel, and you also wander back into some of the Rishonim, but it's most succinct in the Sforno and Arbanel, they say that Historically, the Parisi and the Kanani didn't get along with each other. They were different societies. They were not friends. They lived in the same region. However, they did live together. They coexisted. And when they looked at what was happening among the Jews, when they looked at the tension between the shepherds of Abraham versus the shepherds of Lot, they said, these people can't get along among themselves, call the Homer, if we allow them into our land, they're going to create machlokas among us also. We don't want them. So we need to look at when Jew is against Jew, when Jews turn against each other, when Jews turn turn other Jews in, or are willing to sacrifice Jews because of a radical ideology, there's no Kavit Shemayim there. There's no Kiddush Hashem there. And what do we expect the world to think about all of us if there is a hateful group among some of us that's turning turning against the rest of us? Even such a small group. No group in particular. No, even such a small little group. Even if it's fewer numbers, it still impacts and unfortunately sheds negative light on the rest. We have to We have to take note of that and we have to really pray and hope that there is a way we can reverse the Sina, Jew to Jew, by proliferating that fraternity, that brethrenhood, that sense that this is a time we all have to stand up and care about one another. Um, Absolutely. I think it was Alexander Hamilton who said that if we don't all hang together, we will all hang separately. Let's not do that. Yes. All right. No Thank news you. Is good news. Thank you so much, Rabbi Fox. Always a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Be well. Hatzlacha. Bye-bye. Amen. Thank you so much. Joining us now is Rabbi Eli Reingold. Rabbi Reingold is the Rosh Kolel and the Yeshiva of Greater Washington. He is a product of Tells, having learned in Tells for 23 years. He is a noted Baal Halacha, Baal Musar, who gives numerous shiurim every week. Rabbi Reingold, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you for the opportunity to share. So Rabbi Reingold, what I'd like to try to accomplish today is basically you're giving a shir klali. I'll have questions along the way, but a shir klali so we can get a clear view of the stance, the beliefs, the ideology of the Satmar Rav, which still leads Satmar today. What are the pros? And what are the cons of his mahalach? So as a fundamental way to start, what's the main argument or maybe the source of the original Satmarav? We're talking about Rav Yol Teitelbaum, not the current Satmarav, against the state of Israel. Okay, so the, the, first of all, I want to point out that probably the best person to have on here would, would have been a would have, would have been a Satmarav, but instead of ending up with a Telzer instead, with uh, um, up second best. So I, I'll tell you, I, I did search, and we're still in search of of the Satmarav to come on to the show. We're still in okay. search. Okay, so the, 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 the main source in the Biel Mersha and the country he has a country called the Gula Balatamura, which eventually was absorbed into the larger Sefer Biel Mersha. The main source that he has is the Mark Subas and Kufi Dalif where the Gemara brings that. 
that uh, the version <coughs> was Mashbia, Klayasro, three shuas based on the Psukim and Shirashirim. Uh, what exactly those, those shuas mean? That's that's part of the, the conversation. And the three shuas are that um, that Klayasro should not be oil of the Klayasro should be should not be married and the version was Mashbia, that they shouldn't be overly. Burden and So then the more fears always, and the more says that uh, if Kaiso does not do this, the, the pasuk continues and says Hishpatis Kamenos Yerushalayim. Those are the psukim which it's mentioned three times in Shir Shirim. It says Bitzoyso Bayolus Hisotem that if Kaiso keeps this good, if not, and he matres Besarchem Kitzoyos Bayolus Hisotem. The merchant's going to be mafker Klai Yisrael's goofing to the Muslims to do with, with them whatever they want. So the punishment for the, not keeping the shuas is extraordinarily uh, harsh punishment. So there, there are two shvuas, two obligations, two oaths on Klai Yisrael and one on the Umasolam, one on the non-Jews. And ours, if we can define that, and also that we should not be more, we should not rebel against the Umas. So what, what do those two mean? Okay, so Rashi says, Klai should not come together as a unit through force. They should not force themselves back into Eretz Yisrael. So the uh, Klai is not allowed to force themselves back into Eretz Yisrael. That's number one. And they cannot do that against the uh, so those two those two shvuas are connected. In other words, it's not that you can't be more but umosh in their own countries. It relates to Eretz Yisrael, both of them. Uh, that, that's the simple reading of the Gemara. The Morel, words, it's referring to that the Klaiso cannot refuse the, the Shibut of Goliath in the in the Golus. But the primary issue is trying to leave the Golus. Yes. Uh-huh, so both both of those. So t- talk to me about any other interesting Rishonim, any other interesting Achronim that give a little bit more uh, understanding as to what these shvuas are. So it's it's interesting. There's very little on the Gemara itself. You, you look in the Shita. There's very little in the Gemara. It's not brought down on the Riff and the Rush. It's not brought down on the Rambam. So it's it's you know it's it's, it's a Gadot Gemara. So your primary place you're going to look is the, in the Morale. The Morale does have it, speak about it both in the Chushay Gadot and in Netzach and Perach of Dalit, where the Morale the, the Morale talks about uh, what what's the point of this Gemara. He says there's three elements in Golus. There's the Shibud which comes with it. There's the uh, the state of being in Golus that you're not in Eretz Israel. So he sees those as two different parts to it. Um, and, and the Shibud of course has two sides. So it has Lumos Elam side and Klaisel's side. So he sees that the, the point is Klaisel is to be in Golus and Klaisel is supposed to a burden and Golas. And that's the, the, the point of the Gomorrah. And what exactly is the Shavuah concept is a big deal. Exactly what was this Shavuah? So the, again, the Ram does not mention it. The Ram and Garis Taimon does mention this Gomorrah. In the last par- the last parakel of Geras Teimon, the Raman the Rama does mention this Gemara that Shlomo Melech he sees that Shlomo Melech was on Shpia Klal Yisrael. It was a Shua Shir Shimon was by Shlomo Melech, so it wasn't a Kadosh Baruch doing it. Shlomo Melech doing it in the shame of a Kadosh Baruch that Klal Yisrael should undertake this. So the ter- terrible Golos, the Tzoros that Klal was going through in, in, in Teimon at the time, where the Raman was writing his letter to be Mechazik them. He says, understand that, that, that this, this is part of what Mechabel. The main reason he wrote the letter is because there's a person who presented himself as Mashiach and was claiming to take them back. Etc. And the Rambam says he clearly wasn't Mashiach, and this idea of trying to create a Mashiach and force and, and take his out of the Golas is against this Gemara. So he does seem to accept this Gemara as being binding in some way, even though he doesn't bring it in, in the, the Yad HaZaka. So the Rambam doesn't bring it. How about the tour? How about the Shulchan Aruch? Ne- neither, neither the tour nor the Shulchan Aruch brings this Gemara. So and how, how about so again, and the, the Mitzvahs? 
Um, not that I'm aware of that the money is any, any money is bringing it. So I, I'm not so familiar with the money mitzvahs, but not that I'm aware of that they bring it. Um, okay, so that's, that's interesting. This isn't covered a lot in the Rishonim. It's not covered in the Rambam except Igeris Teman. It's not covered in the Torah. It's not covered in the Shulchan Aruch, and that's not covered in the Omonia mitzvahs. So the question then is, how does something that seems to be agadic in nature become Halacha, how does it become such an important pillar of, of the Satma Rebbe's teachings as it relates to the land of Israel? So that's, that's a hard question. I mean, we do find that we we, we go to a God when we don't have halacha, halachic sources. It's, it's never Gishma because you know, there is a cloud. You can't be learned from a God of halacha lamaisa. Uh, for example, in more, in more modern issues we have nowadays, you have, let's say, surrogacy. So the deal, so the person runs to the medrash about the, changing the, the the baby from from Leia to to, to, to Rachel, switching Dina and and and, uh, and, uh, and Yosef. You know, so you see that is it is it shame that the, the mother was it, it developed it or the, the mother when they actually gave birth? That's like the but they went there because they don't, there's no there's no halacha gemara which discusses the issue when you have Zera being being put in. A different month from the the, the zero of the aim being put in somewhere else. So you go, you do find such a Muslim that seeking out using a lock a god of to some extent. When there was when you went through the thing of cloning, what the status of cloning is. So your sources are going to be are going to be agadic. There's not so many halakha sources about cloning. Uh, but the idea is something this which really was relevant. If it really wasn't relevant, the, the Kaisal never really had the opportunity to be Arla Bechayma. The opportunity to be Arla Bechayma was never, never a, a, a very practical issue until the secular Zionism started developing in the 1800s, the idea of coming back to Israel and pushing it. The Zionist movement, you know, the religious Zionist movement and the secular Zionist movement, the religious Zionist movement actually happened first. The beginning of the early half, the first half of the 1800s, uh, the, the secular Zionist movement didn't really develop itself with the Zionist Congress in 1898. It never was, wasn't discussed because it wasn't a practical issue. So, uh, but, the, but the fact that the Raman does bring in a Geras Teman is, the, the, you know, is is significant. The fact that he uses it as something which he, he directs them, and this is what you're, they're supposed to do. Uh, there is a mention one of the Rishonim that there, there's uh, one of the Chubas Rishonim talks about the Gemara. So it, it's not like it's not broad at all. It is broad, just. It's hard to build on it. Um, it be clear that you're supposed to build on it. Uh, it's interesting. In, in the favor of Masaris Marsha, they have Mordechai Tendler put different conversations he had with the Marsha Tzatzal, Marsha Feinstein Tzatzal, on different topics. So he once asked the Marsha about the Gimel Shuas. Uh, the background of the story where there was that apparently people used to come there and spend eat breakfast. People which were working in Lower East Side with some of the eat breakfast in Yeshiva. So there was some fellow who, who was was making a big tumult about about the, the Shalosh Shuas there in Yeshiva on a constant basis. L'chumra, apparently. So uh, so he asked. Mersha, Mersha says, look, how are we supposed to discuss something that it's not brought in halacha? You know, you're asking me what, what what's supposed to be lemaisa on something which is not brought in halacha, but so it's, it's, it's the whole thing is uh, it's difficult to discuss. The summer when he brings the piece, he says the fact the morale, the more continues further, the more it says uh, one one piece that is referring to the Shmat. So in, in that the morale says, what does it mean? That even if you're going to be threatened with Shmad, if you go up, you can't go up. So that's how now that's not clear in the more that's what the, that, that's the more it means. It's not clear in the morale, that's what the morale means. That's what the Rebbe understands the morale. So he's saying that we're dealing with something which um that this even the that you even if it's shashmad, you know, you're you're going to lose your life if if you go to Israel, they'll let you live. If you stay in Chutzlars, they'll kill you. You do not go to Israel. So it's it's uh, but it's not one of the big three that is brought in the in the Gemara and Sanhedrin. Uh, so it's it's it, so it's not a lab, It's not an essay. It's a shul. Klaiser, Klaiser is a shul. So this I don't I don't want you to do this. So. 
as far as I, I can figure out, I don't, I'm not clear to, to me how he understands. He moves into secular Zionism. He calls it Minus and Kfira. So it's Minus. So it's worse than Avodah So it has this, the Chumras of Avodah Zorah. That's not, that's not more than the Gemara. He's seeing that the, the decision to be Arla B'chaimah is equivalent of Minus by de- definition, even if you're the biggest Sadiq in the world. So Mela goes into the Sukkim of Avodah Zorah. Okay. That's, that's quite, it's, it's, a, it's a jump a little bit, but that's what he does. So once you, once he understands the morale, the morale, seeing, the, seeing this, this is mamish, a significant, I can since you can't ignore such a concept. So the main, main force we have in the Gemara is the morale. The morale is seeing that this is something which is binding to that extent. Now, Aliyah of a Yachid is not us, sir. It's just it's So this time against Zionism was that, that that's what they did. They forced themselves back. And the time was that, well, maybe the only issue is if you do it, Shlob Rishus, and they did Rishus, right? So that's Starting in 1948. The, You're saying 1948 when they had the Well, well the, 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 from the British mandate, you know, the British mandate already. So they were doing it, Rishus, the idea of creating the Jewish state. He says... You have this is an argument which which you know the Palestinians argue says the Western nations decided to just on our back what to do. So who said they have a right? Who said the Western nations you need resources from us? You didn't get resources from us. We need resources, but you asked resources from the wrong people. Right? It's like asking resources from the from the Rosh Hashiva, and you're supposed to ask from the Mashkiach and Yeshiva. Resources, you know, you asked from the wrong person. So it's, it's very nice. So the Western nations gave resources that you should go to the Middle Africa and take something. You're like, well, what's you're not about the boss. So who who has to be asked then? So they kind of they, they, the rabbit said, said that the people who live there were the ones who would have to be asked, and they have to agree. So that's that's the argument that that they weren't they weren't mekayim that um, that the, the rishus. Now it's not so partial because even if you like even if you look like that because if you tie the two things together, you can't be married to the umas You're in the umas Don't be married to them by going up there to Israel. So you don't have to ask resources where you're going, you have to ask where you're coming from. So that's where your goal is, right? So that argument itself is a little difficult to understand where he sees where he sees that. I guess you could prove that from the second shore, Mored but Umos, Umos is plural tense, Umos. Right. So it can't be limited to the people who are endemic and localized in the place that you're going to. Correct. It means now it would be interesting if it had been the, the Ottoman the Ottoman Empire still had existed. So they were the the, the the locals were not arguing that that they weren't under the resources of the Ottoman Empire. So as much as the Ottoman Empire would give resources for the Jews to come back, that argument wouldn't apply. So the Ottoman Empire was was conquered and or was basically destroyed, right? And the League of Nations took over, which were they were the allies who had conquered them. We hold Kibush works took over the responsibility for the properties of the Ottoman Empire. So they were, they are the same with Ottoman Empire would be a Balabas. So the heart of the League of Nations would also be the Balabas. So the Allies, League of Nations, in war, there's a concept in the Torah that Kibish Muhammad works. So they were, they were Kibish Muhammad. Possibly they were the right people to ask. You know, the, the, the League of Nations, which, which is the one who started the whole process with the League of Nations, was, was the right people to ask. But that's part of that, part of the argument. The interesting remorse in that piece. Says um, that Mordechai asked him, or, or Mordechai Taylor asked him, well, maybe the Shuas are totally Zebazeb. He says, I seem to recall that, you know, that the Zayda had said that the Shuas are totally Zebazeb. When the Muslim of Mishabu Klai so Yasumidai said the whole thing is bottle. So Mordechai said, it's a Sora Nakarnehi. It's a good Sora. But like Mordechai smiled when he said it. He said, because like the whole thing is like we're discussing it again at the Gemara. So it's hard to, hard to, 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 uh, to, to see that it's binding. The rabbi right, and, and the, 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 the Moshe had already said that it's not la halacha. Correct. 
Okay, very good. Now, now the view of the Satmarov, which subsequent post scheme accepted his views? Interesting. The Shas the idea that's trying to create the Jewish force and forcibly create a Jewish state. A lot of a lot of Dalim, you know, not just the Hasidim, a lot of Dalim were agreed with that, so that that was incorrect to do. Some agreed with them based on the Gemara, some agreed with them based conceptually because it was primarily secular Zionism, which was pushing it. The religious, the religious Zionists were not setting the agenda. The secular Zionists were setting the agenda, and they were they were they were trying to replace Torah with the land. So uh, that was something which many Gedalim were against. The question is, what happened once the state exists is where the, the things get exciting, right? Most Gedalim said, and that was the, that was the decision of Aguda, the Metzis of Aguda at the time, to deal with the government. I mean, at some point, to, 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 to vote, to sit in the opposition, to, to sit in the, the government, not as a minister, to sit in the government as a minister. Like This is all part of the, the conversation. What role can you play in, the, in this process? But it's a reality on the ground, and you deal with it. The Rebbe, the Gemara says that the punishment for this, he felt that the Holocaust happened because of the secular Zionist push. The Gemara, if you are with these shoes, the person says, I'm going to mafka your goofus. He said, we never saw any generation where this happened. You know, the Muslim until then, when there was a Muslim of Shema, if you convert, we'll, 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 we'll save you, we'll, we'll kill you. The, during during Tachvatat, that was true. During Spain, that was true. It was, that was a choice of religion. But this wasn't religion. Just destroy the Christ no matter what. It was, it says we, there was no history. There was never such a thing. It says that Muslim, their, their mufkar is this Gemara. So he says that the, 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 if so, the Zionists have it in a right him. They're causing. They're, they're destroying Klaus, so they're pushing killing people. So you have to. You have to. You have a dinner yard. Well, yeah, we're not to listen to them, and you have to fight against them. With with, with as 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 right from you have to stop them. So that's when the Zerikarta came and took this thing all like all the way to, to the extent of trying to work actively against the state to undermine the state because they're right from you have to stop them. The, the Rebbe, yeah, the, it, it's that's more notorious Carta, but the Satmar never actively worked or no against the state. But that's where the thought process came from, right? Well, you know, if they're right for him, so you need to stop them. The Rebbe never advocated that you have to stop them. It says the result is going to be more dangerous, you know. Uh, in a different place in the Sarsa he says that the Turicarte uh, has a status, they have a status of moisture. They're trying to give a reclass into the hands of the Muslim. So they have a status of moisture. So they have a dinner of Russia. And I'm not getting involved in the halachic implications of that. Ain um, lochelik lo olam haba. Yeah, I'm you know I'm not I'm not passing the olam haba, the olam haza, whatever you know. But you know, but it's like you know he was responding to they take out an ad in the New York Times trying to convince the American government not to support not support Israel. This times for Russia already. You think this is an ISIS? This is the times for Russia. He was responding to that. Okay, so that's where, that's where the where the rabbit comes from. I just want to share with you. I have um like where the Gdalim stood in it. So there's a, there's a famous Talmud in 1954. The, the Talmuds were were, were, were anti Zionist. Um, the Talmud Rav has a shmuz where he the Rishon Bluff, the Shira Das has a shmuz. He says he actually starts with a Shabbos group. The Shira Shabbos between the two wars was terrible, and this group is one of the causes Shira Shabbos. And he says it's, that's a very dangerous thing. When you take one mitzvah and you make it the f- primary focus, you're out of balance, and that's not Torah. You see, gave a mushal, a person buys person is 
the doctor tells him he has to exercise, but he can't afford a good machine. So he buys a broken down machine, which doesn't really work so well. So exercise. So one side works, the other doesn't work. So a few months, he's religiously exercising. And after a few months, the right side has been working. So his right side is built up. And he has this big, strong right right, right side muscle. The left side, is he's, he's withered. Nothing's happened. So he doesn't look healthy. He looks like a freak. So overemphasizing one side over something else, the result is that you look like a freak. That's not tar. Even if it's even if it's Shabbos, he says that's what he has a problem with Zionism. Even religious Zionism, he says this problem is because they're overemphasizing the mitzvah of Israel, that's Israel, to the detriment of all the other parts, the, the focus on the other parts of the mitzvahs. he was against the concept that schools have called Midas Achadish. Right? So you're focusing on one meter for the month. He says he felt that that was that that idea that you could focus on one thing. He was uncomfortable with it. Now the reality is we're 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 such weaklings and wimps that we can only focus on one thing at a time. So maybe that's our excuse. But um, so tell us we're anti-Zionist. Right, so well, we, we can make that argument also for the anti-Zionists if they're too extreme in their views. They're also misbalanced. Correct, hundred percent. I think it's, it's the same argument. So the um, Rebbe Mayer was mishtatif in the the Yom Ha'atzmaut celebration, nineteen fifty four, in, in the city in, Cle- in Cleveland, right? Which was um, which was he was nifter that there were he was nifter that later that year. So that was like the last year of his life. This took place. The the Summer Rebbe was upset about it to the point that Summer Rebbe called him a Zionist. Rebbe Mayer wrote back to him that I'm very insulted. Rebbe asked him a chila. He says, I'm not Michael unless you come to Yeshiva and say a shir. So that Rebbe came to tell us and said a shir because he didn't he was much early mayor that he, early mayor had tennis and he wanted to be, be so he came came by train, came to Cleveland and said a shir. Uh, but he but he wrote a letter to somebody in Washington Heights, a person named Delvin Ullman, wrote to Rebbe Mayor. Is it true that you, you know, they, the, the, the Royer's Kila was also anti Zionist? He says, like, is this true? And he wrote back a letter explaining why he did it. Right, that the 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 idea that there are certain things which aren't positive is incorrect. There's certain things about the the, the establishment of the state which are positive, and we need to recognize that. At the same time, pointing out our, our, our argument that the that the that this becomes the primary focus is incorrect. The idea to totally disconnect from the whole thing uh, is uh, what what the state has accomplished. What is accomplishing? He was not an advocate of that. It was a more balanced approach in that regard. So it was printed in the, the same Mitzvah Shalom. You can't you can't make this stuff up. The rest of Epstein is very had these sort of of Musa, Tars of Shalom, this is Shalom, etc. So Mitzvah Musa. So he, put, he published in the back of his Mitzvah Shalom to give an example of how you can argue with, disagree with somebody. Relimer went and he spoke what the position of good is. That's what he spoke there. So he spoke against the state by the Yomad Samut, but the same thing, certain things are good. So he said, you see how you can, you can, you can disagree without being disagreeable. The Kamoyim heard about the fact that he published this letter for Rebbe Mayer. He stored his swarm that he published in his garage. They burned down his garage. The Sefer Mitzvah Hashalom was burned down by Kanoyim. The Sefer Mitzvah Hashalom was burned down by the Kanoyim because they don't like the fact that Rebbe Mayer is finding a balance in Shalom. The second version of the Sefer, when he published in 86, he didn't publish the letter from Rebbe Mayer. If he put it like a rabbi, that's missing. So the Tzav version is 1969. They're in the back. He brings the letter from Rebbe Mayer. He did that. Very interesting. I, as, as the takeaway of all this, when it comes to our views, we should have balance. There are there are, there are significant challenges in the, the Medina, especially when it began. When it began. They were anti-Torah. They were trying to eradicate Yiddishkeit. The Zionists, the secular Zionists, were trying to eradicate Yiddishkeit. And that's something which we, we have to recognize. And the fight which the Haredim had with that was is generations already of this problem. At the same time, it was there was a it was a positive development. The Isra being that the Rebbe took and made it a halacha. It's very difficult, like Marshall said, to make that into halachic arguments. Um, the fact that they got Rishos 
seemingly from the right source, would arguably be, would be something which stands stands well regards to the Sugas of Gomorrah. You have also the fact that the Muslim definitely overstepped their boundaries throughout the generations. And uh, it's been, it's we've seen Nisim, Nisim, and Russian taking care of Eretz Yisrael, which hopefully is indicative of the fact. I'll maybe end with one thing. Revise the Gosband, the Shiva Revise the Gosband, once made a comment that the the flowering of the of the land, you know, the, the fact that it's 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 it was desolate. It was it was it was a, it was a, it was a midbur for all until Kaiso came back. He says that's a simon that the land is saying that the land is saying we're ready. I'm ready. He says, if Kaiso says, says the chupa, and then Kaiso will be ready also, then Mashiach will come. He says, but the land is making a statement. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm being nice to you. I'm ready for you to, to, go, to come back. Here's what we do to our part. Do the chupa, Mashiach is going to come. That was revising Zetel's comment on that, on the, on the situation. Very beautiful word. Very beautiful. Rabbi Reingold, I want to thank you so much for joining us. I certainly learned a tremendous amount, and I really appreciate all your insights. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. A pleasure. Joining us now is Rebetzin Fagi Tversky. Rebetzin Tversky has devoted her life to Jewish education and outreach. She is a mother of 11 children, numerous grandchildren, and she serves as the Rebetzin alongside her husband, Rav Michal Tversky of Congregation Base, Yehuda of, of Milwaukee. Rebetzin Tversky recently published yet another book with Mosaica Press. It is called Which Way is Up? It's available in, in stores, so please go out and get it. Rebetzin, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. So, Rebetzin, we have just had an extensive conversation with various Rabbanim and guests about difficult issues, uh, Satmar, Zionism, Naturi Karta, and a theme that I'd like to end off on, and it's actually part of what you discuss in the book, is the importance of Achtos, building relationships with others. So we'd love to get your insight and experiences as what do you have to say on this topic, and uh, give us a little bit foreshadowing on, on what you have in the book that we'd love to hear. Achdus, um, we all know, is so critical. Um, we know that the Rabbin Shalom uh, gave us our Torah Hakdosha, which is obviously what drives our lives, uh, because when we, he gave us that Torah, that we qualified for it, we merited to receive it because of Achdus, because it says that the Pasuk in the Torah tells us, Vayichan Shom Yisrael Keneget HaOr, and Vayichan is in the singular um, tense, and Rashi says it's singular because they were there at the mountain, all of them together, like one person with one heart. And that's the ideal, to be like one person with one heart. And it's a, been a very difficult um, route for all of us to uh, to achieve that. And in um, and, and, and our collective lives as a as a nation and individually in our own personal lives to have actors to come together um marriages where a husband and wife um have uh, difficulties and um so the question is what what we can do about it and how we can work towards achieving it so i think that the important thing to realize is that when people live in separate realities that we have, you know, one person's reality is not the same as the other person's reality. And the important thing is not to be judgmental of the other person, to understand they come from a different place. And of course, with couples, they each come of different uh, families of origin, and it takes time to acclimate and to adjust to the other person's way of, of living, of thinking, of behaving, and, and not to judge uh, to conclusions. I mean, one of the very, very important ways of, of doing that is uh, what we call deep listening. 
to really listen to what the other person has to say, not to jump to conclusions. Have a donis kaladam lekafschus, give a person the benefit of the doubt. The way we can do that is not to be quick. You know, we when we talk to somebody, we're not really listening to understand as much as we're listening to figure out in our heads are already the mind is churning with ideas of how we're going to respond. And that keeps us from really listening to what the other person has to say. So if we can disabuse ourselves of, of, of ourselves, our agendas, and our wishing to come off ahead of the other person and just listen, Listen to what the other person has to say without bias and without prejudging what they're about to say. That would be a really um, amazingly important. So that's one of the ways to achieve actus. Understand every person is entitled, you know, to their opinion. My husband always explained the Shavilim when we came out of uh, Mitzrayim, that Cloud Yisrael went through the Yamsuf and there were 12 Shavilim, 12 paths. Each um, Shavit had their own path. Each shevet had their own way of operating. It wasn't like uh, the, the next one that they had. I, I heard that's uh, similar, that uh, we say in the beginning of the Shemona Esrei, they each had a different way. They each had a different path. And it's acceptable and wonderful, and it's beneficial, and it brings a strength. Exactly, exactly. And and also he added to that, that uh, the Medrash says that between each shavil, each path, there were uh, there were windows. They each it was separated by windows. And he said, what was the point of having windows? He said, a window, when you see a window, it's kind of an invitation to look inside. And we were, each Shevet was invited to look inside at the mode of Parantes of the next one, so that maybe I can learn from that Shevet. Maybe there's something that that Shevet has to offer me, some way that I, I can edify my, uh, my own behavior. Not only not to judge them in a negative way, but perhaps they they can teach me something that I don't as yet know. So to look at, at other people and to not only accept their behavior, but to listen carefully and to see what is it about what they're saying that makes sense. And if I listen without bias, I, I may I may recognize that and I realize it and I may realize it and incorporate it in, into my into my whole life into my life. So I, I think that that's a very important when we talk about a harmonious to, yeah. to have a harmonious relationship. When we think about harmony and we think about harmony in music, it doesn't mean that all the instruments are playing the exact same thing. They just have to harmonize. You know, they each do their own thing with their own instrument, but it comes together in a beautiful way. We don't have to agree on everything, but we have to kind of agree to disagree. Like, it's okay for you to think differently so long it's done in a respectful way. We have to respect each other and respect each other's uh, opinion. And if it doesn't, if it doesn't work for me, fine. I'm, I'm on my own spiel. I'm on my own path. But that person, the other person is entitled to, to his, his path. And we can and, take a, a, a step further when it comes to the harmony. I love that, that analogy, the orchestra. That brings the strength is the differences. The differences is what brings the whole harmony and brings the beauty together. Exactly. Exactly. So we would recognize that. Uh, the other thing that's also very important is in both in personal and collective relationship is to be mavater. 
you know, we always are so invested in our own opinions that it has to be my way. And certainly in personal relationships, we're very familiar with that. No way am I going to give in to him or to her. It has to be my way. To be mevater is is such a critical, important uh, dimension of a relationship. You know, Chazal say, that the world exists in the merit of somebody who, when there's a, a disagreement, keeps their mouth shut. A person keeps their mouth shut and is mevate. I don't have to best you in an argument. I don't have to do, I, we feel like if, if you're going to say something and it sounds good, I'm going to say something that sounds even better to outdo you. To um, be mevater is, is a huge thing as well. You know, my father-in-law, Zechron was a, a fabulous, wonderful man, Rabbi Jacob Tversky. And he once went to a, a meeting of the Rabbanim and Shochtim in the community. And uh, they, they there was a very heated discussion. And eventually it broke down to people insulting each other and going at each other. And my father-in-law was quiet. He didn't say anything. The next day, the next morning, he saw one of the rabbinim and that rabbi said to him, Rabbi Tversky, you didn't, they were, people were insulting you left and right and you didn't say a word. How, how come? He says, to tell you the truth, I, I wanted supper. He says, what? You wanted supper? So he said, you know, I would have come home to my Rebbitson after this meeting, and she would ask me what happened at the meeting. And I would have said, you know, this one said this, and this one uh, attacked me in this way, and the other one attacked me another way, and this is what I said. I uh, threw back accusations at them. And she said, and she would say to me, and you stoop to their level, no supper tonight for you. <laughs> So he said it was simple, simple kind of reason. I just wanted supper. Very so. good, very good. That's that's the Mishnah in Pirkei Avos. I grew up in Chachamim between the sages. Being quiet. Keep your mouth quiet. Keeping one's mouth quiet is also very powerful. And it's powerful in a collective situation. It's powerful in um, not to be passive aggressive, you know, where it's a, a tool that I use against somebody, but to, to be quiet and let, you know, the the, the old uh, saying that if you're upset, you know, either count to 10 or walk around the block or wait till the next morning, you know, before you respond so you have a chance to cool down. That's It's all very, very good at Advice. So I, I think we were able to do that and not not jump to be uh, judgmental of another person, to look for the good. You know, one, one of the things that are very clear is whatever we're looking for, that's what we're going to find. If I look to, to find fault and flaws in another person or in any situation, that's what I will find. If, an, if I look to find the good in others and the good in a situation, that's what I, I will find. So I, I always tell even, you know, couples when they come in and, and they're having their problems and uh, and they give me a whole li- a long list of, of avlas. So I said to them, you know, try catching your husband or your children doing something right. 
or your wife doing something right. Fine, actually doing something right. Don't uh, don't just be there looking for for what's wrong. Sometimes we feel that we're kind of rebellious watchmen that we have to look at our children. We're raising them. We want want to make sure that they're doing everything right, and, and we're and we're highly critical rather than being encouraging. And it's much more important to be encouraging than to be critical. And and we have to when we are critical, we have to tempt with compassion because nobody is born perfect and we have to realize when we criticize somebody it has to be not only justified but it has to be tempered with a compassion so uh, all of those things would help us greatly if we would include them in our relationship with others and i think it would foster a, a great deal of actors very well said rebitson want to thank you so much for joining us it's always a pleasure having you on the show Thank you very much, and Atzlacha Rab, and all the wonderful things you do, Rabari. And good luck on the book called Which Way Is Up. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Good to have you.